Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today's guest is Mark Child, chairman and CEO of Condor Gold, a TX, TSX and AIM listed gold exploration and development company with a focus in Central America. Uh, Mark has background in corporate finance and private equity has been at the helm of Condor Gold for nearly 15 years and has seen the company grow and transform itself to what it is today. So I'm delighted to have um, the opportunity to hear about uh, the company's journey and Mark's journey. So um, no further ado, I'd like to welcome Mark Child. How are you doing, Mark? Oh, great, great. Good to be here. Thanks for having yeah. me. Yeah, and I appreciate your time as well. And I know you're, um, we were just speaking just before this and uh, you're in um, sunny Spain um, whilst I'm here in the UK. Um, as we always start these podcasts off, um, just wondering if you can give us a, an overview of your, your career and your background. So from when you left school and graduated um, up to sort of present day. And then I've got some questions that I want to uh, find out more about Condor Gold. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, so I, my background's been in finance for the last uh, 20 years uh, before joining Condor. Um, in fact, I, I started off in the British Army. I went to Sandhurst. I got commissioned as a, 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 an officer uh, in the Gurkhas. Uh, I was born in Hong Kong out of a mi military family. So my father was a colonel in the British Army. Uh, and hence, I got born in Hong Kong because he was stationed there. And I think that sort of led me to wanting to get into the Gurkhas because they were based in Hong Kong and Asia. Yeah. So I was commissioned in... Um, uh, 1981, uh, just when the Falklands War broke out, and the three of us, four of us were Gurkha officers, and two went down to the Falklands, and I got on a, I got on a plane and went to Brunei, and ended up in the jungle for six months. <laughs> so that was formative years, for about three, year, three years I served with them, uh, in Hong Kong, uh, Brunei, uh, Nepal, New Zealand, uh, and you get your emerging market sort of wanderlust from that. So I then moved out of that after four years, uh, into stockbroking, specializing in Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia uh, for 12 years full time. I started as an analyst in research, took my stock exchange exams, um, uh, worked in the Corgavet in the UK for a couple of years, had a year in research in Hong Kong. Um, and then I moved over onto the private equity side and uh, I became head of corporate finance for Region Pacific Group, which is uh, Jim Mellon's company, who's a 15% shareholder in Condor. So we've had a relationship going back 20 years professionally and get on very well. Uh, so you saw him last night for uh, an update on the company. Yeah. Um, so that's my background. I, I then took some exams to become a, a, a chartered director in the UK. So at the IOD, Institute Directors, you can, you can take eight different modules to become a chartered director. Uh, and I did that with a view that I like the idea of becoming non-exec director of half a dozen companies um, uh, and just become a professional director. Uh, at the time, I was also regulated in corporate finance by the SA at the time I was seeing now. Uh, and so 14 years ago, as you said, well, actually almost 15, you know, I was asked if I'd like to become non-exec chairman of Condor Resources, 
which was in El Salvador at the time and had half a million ounces. And I put my hand up uh, thinking, that's great. I'll do two days a month uh, at Condor. Uh, Non-exec chairman of a gold exploration company. That sounds great. Appealed to my emerging market desires, if you like, and on the frontier. Um, little did I think 14 years later, I'd still be here. Yeah. Um, and eight years. So what happened? So it's quite a long journey in that sense that I was strictly non-exec two days a month for the first couple of years. Then the asset was 100% in El Salvador, got suspended. The share price went down 90%. Uh, and the former CEO um, had to effectively had to go because there was no business. The company had a market cap of £1 million. <laughs> uh, and uh, I thought, well, what, here's an opportunity. So I, I put a lot of my own money in and friends and family. We raised two million quid and effectively had a cash shell with a suspended million ounces of gold in El Salvador. Um, and I tried to reverse vehicles in for a couple of uh, other gold assets into it because a three million pound company is too small to be listed yeah. and to grow it organically. And as it's turned out, I've grown it organically. So and about eight years ago, there was enough to justify my time full time. So I've been 24 seven on it for the last eight years and taking it to to, to what it is today. So it's been a, it's been a massive learning curve. Uh, but yeah. when you immerse yourself 100% in an industry, you just, you learn it uh, by the, uh, yeah, no, yeah, no better than actually really understanding something by immersing yourself in it and doing it 24-7 for eight years. So I yeah. now know a hell of a lot about it. Yeah. And I suppose if you're passionate about it and you've got an interest in, in the company as well, you want to do the best you can and the best possible um, and that, would, that drives you forward as well. Well, I think it does. And you know, when I started this, I had a 12 or 15% stake in the company. So there was, I, it was a roll of the dice, if you like, in the entrepreneurial. I was at an age where I wanted to roll the dice and see if I could make my fortune for just put it candidly. Uh, we all do. You know, I like it anyway. I thought I'd put all the experience in corporate finance and private equity and stockbroking and but I actually like running things. Yeah. Um, and even in corporate finance, I was an executive director of the private equity group, two billion under management. So I like running stuff and um, that's me. And uh, so I rolled my sleeves up uh, to, to get involved. And yes, so if it went well, you know, it, 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 you hopefully you get financially remunerated. Yeah. And so that, that's, there is a driver in that. Yeah. Certainly. Um, so I just wonder if you can um, give the audience a little bit of uh, background on Condor Gold um, and also obviously around your uh, La India project in Nicaragua. Yeah, sure. Well, La India project, the reason I picked it up um, was because originally, about 10 years ago, was because there was a Soviet classified resource of just over 2 million ounces on the project at 9 grams. So back in the 80s, they drilled it out and it was a former mine. Um, that had produced over half a million ounces of gold at 13 grams. And no one was doing anything with it. I thought, wow, this is a great, great opportunity. So I worked quite hard to get the mainland here concession, which is 62 square kilometers. And we already, we'd staked around it about four concessions of 92 square kilometers. And I suppose under my leadership, we've, we, in the last eight years, there's been about 60,000 meters of drilling that's gone into it. Um, we've got 2.4 million ounces of gold. Um, we've raised about 65 million US dollars. Uh, it's all gone into the, in the last eight years, it's all gone into Nicaragua. Uh, 
we have 1.2 million ounces in the indicated category, 1.2 million in the lesser category, the inferred category. Uh, of the 2.4 million, half of it is open pitable. So it's 1.2 million open pitable, 1.2 million underground. And of the indicated category, you can take that to, you can only use indicated ounces to get an economic reserve. So, and that's a pre-feasibility study uh, where you have proven probable uh, reserves. So we produced one of those about five years ago. Um, and that reserve has 675,000 ounces uh, at three grams open pitable. It's all open pit. And then we took that through permitting. So we got the pit, the main big pit permitted um, uh, 18 months or so ago. And then we had some smaller feeder pits, which we, which we got permitted recently. So in, in a nutshell, that's, that's the project. Mm. Um, and two months ago, um, Condor committed uh, two feeder pits, um, and Condor now has 1.12 uh, million ounces of gold in mineral resource, including a mineral reserve permitted for extraction. Um, what's the significance of that? Uh, it, it, it take, is a, there's a number of significant points. I think one, one, the government continues to give us permits. So yep. it demonstrates that we're in the right address for mining and that can't be said for everywhere. Nice. So they're, they're giving you permits because they want to see you build the mine. They want to see you extract the gold and create the jobs. Uh, so that's significant that we got that. But more importantly, it makes the project quite a bit bigger. Um, we... It means that out of that open pit material, we're now permitted to uh, construct and develop the processing plant and operate the mine for 10 years. Uh, and that would be about 120,000 ounces of gold per annum that we're permitted to take out over, say, a seven year period. Yeah. Um, so if I give the total numbers, it's about the, when you do mining, you have uh, mining dilution studies. So when you blow the rock up in the pit, some of that mixes with the waste rock. My waste rock's got no gold in it, and the rock with the gold in gets blended with it a little bit. So you get what's called mining dilution. So we have on our studies about 8.5 million tons, uh, which we can transport to the processing plant uh, with a grade of about 3.1 grams. Um, and, that'll, that'll, and that contains about 845,000 ounces of gold. Uh, after metallurgical recovery, there's about 800,000 ounces. So the significance is that it gets bigger. The other point is that is the grade. Um, uh, the, 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 the grade on one of the high-grade feeder pits is 8.7 grams. Um, now, a gram of gold today uh, at 1,000, say at 1,900 US dollars an ounce, one gram is 31.104 grams to an ounce. Yeah. One gram is worth 61 US dollars a gram. So for your listeners, when we, we will talk about grams per tonne. So that tonne of rock you're going to move, what's it worth? So if it's one gram material, that tonne of rock before you've crushed it is, is worth, it's got $61 worth of gold in it. So when you've got 5.7 5 grams in one tonne, that tonne of rock is worth about $350 yeah. just for that tonne of rock. Now, for us to turn that into a bar of gold, it's about $50. So on the mining dilution studies, which we put on our presentations, on the Mestizo open pit, um, we have 600,000 tons of mill feed. And we know that, that I've just explained, that that's, uh, 
each ton contains about $350. And even if we're a bit conservative and say, oh, and after, then you have metallurgical recovery. So about, about uh, 92, 93% metallurgical okay. recovery. So, so after the metallurgical recovery, the ton uh, cut will, will be worth about uh, $325, uh, times 600,000 tons, you're, you're just short of, we've got 190 to $200 million worth of gold just within that pit. Yep. So the significance of the high grade is just in the steezer, it's only 100 meters deep, 110 meters deep, these small pits. You've got revenues of you know, a couple hundred million dollars there. Uh, and uh, there'll be about 111,000 ounces of gold coming out of those. Um, it'll cost you 40, 50 million dollars to turn into a bar of gold. So just Mestiza in a sense could pay for the whole project yeah. because it's, it's grade, the key. We often hear saying grade is king and that's a, a great example of that grade being 50% bigger than the main pit. So the main pit is 3.1 grams. So again, at $61 a ton, yeah, you're $180 a ton there. And this is like uh, almost double the grade. Yeah. Um, so that's also, so quick payback. So it means it changes our mine schedule as well, uh, that we kind of clearly want to mine that first, uh, put it through the mill, get the payback quicker, pay back any bank debt, and gold loans or whatever. Um, so it enhances the, the value of the project. Hmm. Yeah. Um, obviously, you mentioned about obviously getting these uh, permits. Um, how is your relationship with the, the locals and with the government? I take it it is good and that's why they're, they're giving you these permits. Um, but how would you say overall the, the relationship yeah. is with them? Well, there's, there's two parts to that question. Getting a permit, people think, oh, I can get a permit. It's lots of hard work, believe me. I mean, we, we've done this three times now with the main pit and each the two feeder pits. So to get a permit, you submit what's called an ESIA, it's Environmental Social Impact Assessment Document. It's the same as in the States or main, many mining countries. That contains 18 different technical studies. About half of those are mining studies, so geotechnical, mine schedule, waste, tailings, water, hydrology, and, and the other half are like social and environmental. So how many trees are you gonna cut down? So you have to do tree counts and in, in our permit, we have to plant 10 trees for every one we cut down. So all that is good environmental yeah. stuff. You submit that to the ministry. The technicians in the ministries approve that or don't. They might have some questions. So there's a backwards and forwards. And that's an 18-month process. And then finally, when they say at a technical level, you are approved it's from the ministries. There are three ministries, Ministry of Energy and Mines, Ministry of uh, Environment, and Ministry of Forestry. You then proceed to a public hearing. So you can do all your work, go to the public hearing, and that's like a public consultation, they call it there. Yeah. Uh, you have to put letters in the, uh, you have to, 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 to do that on the radio, in the press and everything else, just like the UK. Uh, and then people turn up. So we had about 350 people turning up. And the last couple of public consultations, we've, we've had, you know, we want jobs, we want the mine, because it's an old mining yeah. town. We'll turn us to our former glory days when this was a mining town 75 years ago. So there are artisanal miners. Um, the people want the project. Um, and, and by the reverse, if the, if the people don't want the project, the government's probably going to think twice about giving you the permit. Yeah. Because they're the voters you're upsetting for the government. So, so, so we've had to work. We're very mindful of that. Um, 
And that means we've had massive social programs going on with the community. So on the community, we, we, we have 40 people employed within the community helping us uh, in different groups. We have elderly groups of a half dozen people. We have youth committees. We have, we have pro-mining committees. We have water committees. We give water to every week to 350 households. There's no real drinking water out there. It's not all yeah. portable, clean water. Uh, and there are about six of these committees which we pay a little bit each month, but more importantly, we give them some money enabling them to do something for their group. So the elderly committee get a bit of money and they will uh, do something for the 90 elderly in the community. So we've done all this stakeholder mapping. Yeah. Uh, we have the IFC as a shareholder, so we're, we're also fully compliant with the World Bank IFC performance standards pre-construction for a company. And that, that, that's been a great, it takes a lot of time and effort to put in these community uh, programs and projects, but you, it's essential to take the community with you and you get pundit from the bottom up, you get pundit from the, from the people. That, that, yeah. That's what really drives it, that drives a mining, uh, a mining permit. Yeah, and it sounds like obviously people approve um, and want, obviously want to see you there, so which is yeah. Well, we, we, we have 53 employees today yeah. on the payroll in Nicaragua. They're all Nicaragua. There's no, there's no, I've deliberately yes. had everybody. So we've had mining yeah. engineers, we've had we've got half a dozen people with master's degrees, uh, both in Nicaragua and, and from overseas. We sponsor local villages through master's degrees. You can do them online. We had one in Madrid recently. So, so very important. We have, a, we have another sort of 30, 40 people as security guards. So we have, we're, you know, there's 100 people up there. Uh, and for every person you're paying, in Nicaragua, you pay 21% of the salary the company pays into the national insurance and the healthcare system and the education system. So one reason we get lots of applications is if you're an artisanal miner or you're a subsistence farmer, yeah. there's a million people in the informal workforce there. They're not paying any taxes. They're not paying into the social security and stuff because it's a, a poor country. It's a frontier market. Mm -hmm. So by, 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 by us paying on behalf of the employee, they get those, those benefits too. Yeah. Okay, um, so it's very important to get them on to, to, to work with communities. Absolutely. Yeah, certainly. Um, obviously, you mentioned about um, the open pit, and obviously, this is there is uh, an underground. There will be an underground pit as well. So, what what about the uh, 1.2 million ounces uh, gold in the underground resource? Yeah, the underground. Uh, uh, we uh, it's the same size as the open pit, so the underground. Okay. Um, we're not that that most the majority of that like 80 90 percent of it sits beneath uh, either beneath the open pits or along the strike of the open pits okay yeah so the zone and they will be within the permitted area within the mine site infrastructure so when when you permit the pits you're given polygons by the government as to uh, and you have to buy all the surface rights within that area so we'll learn own all those and Getting, getting the pit, open pits permitted is probably the difficult part because, you know, they're, they're longer and wider and deeper and there's fundamentally more, more, more of an environmental footprint. Yep. Underground is just a portal in the side of the hill. And, and effectively, once, you know, it would, those are, once we just drill them out to try to drill spacing uh, and do the underground mine designs, both of which are costly, uh, you should get those permitted automatically because yeah. you've already been in production and feeding a mill and have jobs. And that's, I think those will just come through 
but our idea is to is to de- use the cash flow from the open pits to to drill out and develop land ground and put those into production out of open pit production. Hmm. Yeah. Um, what major challenges has the company and and possibly yourself experienced? Of obviously during your your um, tenure, obviously you've been there for for fifteen, nearly fifteen years. What what challenges? Some of the bigger challenges that you faced and had to overcome. Well, I think the first the first challenge was starting off in El Salvador, yeah. and we drilled up to one point one million ounces. And in two thousand and eighteen, so I've, I've been as non-exec chairman for a couple of years. The government basically suspended the asset, mm. and they pretty much suspended all mining in in the country, uh, and they passed a law banning mining in El Salvador. So that's two countries to the north. And the shares go down 90%. So that's a bit of a challenge. Yeah. You, 100% of your assets effectively blown up. Um, and then I then re-putting it in to, uh, uh, to, to Nicaragua. And the challenges in Nicaragua have been different in nature. Um, they've been very welcoming the government. So they wanted to encourage us. They've liked the fact we're a UK-listed company. They've liked the fact there's a maverick Brit that goes there once a month for the last eight years and meets the ministers and talks them through what we're doing. They do, yeah. in that part of the world, want to meet you yeah. um, and, and take a view on you, whether you're going to execute and do what you say you're going to do. Because there are a lot of cowboys that pass through. So I, we've, I tried to give that solidity to ministers when I'm meeting them and executing. Uh, we were originally told with Landia Open Pit that it's near a village of Landia, which grew up around the old mining town, that we could resettle about 300 houses. Um, that's what the government told us. Uh, so we went ahead with that and we, they approved the technical studies to resettle. And all those ESIA studies, the 18 which I mentioned to you. Yeah. Uh, and then the community had another, another opinion, which was, we don't really want to move. We like our houses. And it came down to the fact that because their grandparents had worked in the mine, they didn't want to relocate five kilometers away just for some other communities to come in and live by the mine and get the jobs off the mine. So that was a, uh, uh, a big setback because it set the company back two years when we had to redesign the whole project. Yeah. And the result was that we, we made the pit 20% smaller in, we redesigned it to make it 20% smaller in land size to the, near the village. The number of ounces went down 8%, but they just dropped from open pit to underground, oh, so yeah. lost them. Uh, and we moved the processing plant 1.4 kilometers away. We're putting a big berm or barrier of 10 meters high, 800 meters long between the open pit and the community. We relocated a waste dump. We relocated the explosive magazine. So when you do all that, you then have to redo all your studies and put those back into the ministry one more time. And then go through uh, that process then, again. Yeah, and then, then you realize you need to do a bit more on the social. So you quadruple the size of your social team and get your social license. So some of the stuff I did in the Gurkhas in the hills, uh, one of the reasons the British Army has you know, six, 7,000 people applying for 250 jobs every year to join as a Gurkha soldier mm-hmm. is because we do a huge amount of something through the Gurkha Welfare Trust. I don't know if readers are familiar with it, but we do a huge amount. Of, of social license to operate. You know, there's schools built, there's water, bridges built over ravines that have been lost during the rainy season. Uh, there's water wells that have been dug, there's hardship cases worked through. All that stuff I did for six months as a pension paying officer in Nepal. 
um, and community welfare. And that, that's actually ironically, so my past, my early 20s, having that stint in, in helped you. Actually, actually has, I've, I've taken some of that, that, that into what we're doing in Nicaragua. So when we had that setback, I have to rethink everything. I also took in a new general manager from a mine superintendent from a nearby mine who's Nicaraguan, as is Alia. That's been a good hire for us. Um, uh, so that was a big setback, set the project back two years. And of course, it was also at a time when the gold price was going down. We've had a seven year bear market in gold. Yeah, yeah. I know it's hitting all time highs in the last three days, but you know, try, try and running a company when gold's going down from 1,900 to 1,050. Yeah. For seven years that's a challenge just because you're trying to raise money in a bear market and yeah. it doesn't matter whether it's property prices going down 70 percent or 34 percent so gold went down 34 percent high to low or whether it's a gold price the underlying company goes and halves when it doubles it's uh, we were down 80 percent from high to low not because of the mm. project but because of gold yeah and we had a delay on the project so that's another one and and, and in fairness in 2018 the government also had a setback where there was some civil unrest over three months, four months, about 320 people got killed um, in 2018. And so the perception of political risk for us went up. And yeah. there were 56 students shot over a four day period. That's well documented. Yeah. Uh, over, over May, 2008, uh, uh, May, April, May, 2018. And, uh, our share price halved from 45p down to 20p. Uh, again, nothing to do with the gold asset, hadn't moved, still there. Outside working. of your control as well. Totally outside of our control. So both of these examples are, and that's a political risk example. Mm. And, yeah, that, that, and, and you've seen civil unrest uh, in the last six to 12 months throughout much of South America. Yeah. There have been riots on the streets in Ecuador, uh, and, uh, Bolivia, um, Peru, I think, has had, had some issues. So, so there has been a sort of, a, you know, that's pre-coronavirus, if you like. There have yeah. been challenges in, the, in these markets. Yeah. And that's what you're going to manage as a CEO. You know, what do you do when that, if that happens? And we have to send staff home. And, you know, there are roadblocks throughout the country, so you're trying to maneuver things. But, you know, we, we, we've, kept the, we've kept the project on track. And now yeah. Nicaragua has for 24 months since end of July 2018, it's been stable. Yeah. Uh, and Caliber Mining bought Peter Gold's assets for $100 million. Macu Mining spending $60 million building the fourth mine, big commercial mine in the country. Uh, so we're now people, well, thankfully, it's stable and uh, they're, they're pro-mining. Yeah. And how has the COVID situation affected your operation? Uh, I know there's certain countries in South America that have sort of closed down certain mines. Um, how has uh, COVID affected your operation? Well, luckily, we're at a study stage at the moment. So okay. we've got the permits. We got the permits before COVID, thankfully. So the public yeah. hearings for those permits were held on about the 28th, 26th, 27th of February. Just before. So they went yeah. ahead, thank yeah. God. Uh, and we weren't impacted then. And then we were granted them a couple of a couple of months later, in, in April, May, we got the permits for each of the pits, the feeder pits. Um, what we're trying to do now, uh, strategically, is get the project shovel ready this year. 
So yeah. that, and what does shovel ready mean? It's, a, it's an Aussie term, which you might be familiar with. <laughs> uh, and that means fully engineering it as best we can. So uh, the tailing storage facility, where all the waste goes, uh, that goes through the plant and out, we're now 40% engineered on that. Um, we have to have it fully engineered, drawings issued for construction as a condition of the permit. Yeah. Uh, we, we have done probably about half of the engineering studies to date. We're buying all the surface rights. Uh, uh, we've got about 65% at the moment of the surface rights within the permit of mine site infrastructure of, for the Andrew Open Pit, i.e. the weather tailings and the plant and the exposure magazines or all roads, all that. It's about 500 hectares uh, within the area. We're buying about 1,000 hectares in total. Uh, we bought over 30 plots of land. Um, that's challenging, to be honest, uh, because we've got a permanent project and we're sitting on $4 billion worth of gold. So uh, if you're the local farmer, um, yeah, he knows that because yeah. he can on the internet. Uh, but, but we've got four lawyers working on it full time. But really, the work we're doing at the moment, uh, we're not in operation, so it doesn't impact. Some people yeah. work from home, we're minimizing distances in the community, we're doubling our, all our, our social allocations going into healthcare uh, uh, and masks, and we're even making, we even sponsored a cottage industry making hand gels hand okay. and selling yeah. them. We put the money up and they, they're selling it for whatever they want, because there's no hand gels. So we, yeah, yeah. But we've enabled that, but we've created employment out of the, of the way to mm. do it. Which has gone down really, really well. Yeah. Um, so we're not we're not delayed. Uh, the operating mine, Caliber Mine, suspended their two mines for ten weeks, and they announced yeah. a few weeks ago that they're re, that they're having a phased commencement, recommencement of mining. COVID coronavirus in Nicaragua is uh, not good. The situation has got considerably worse. I was last there in March. Um, They've been later getting it. So if you like, they're probably eight oh, yeah. behind the UK. Yeah. Uh, they haven't got the money, unlike us, to go and furlough people and put on 80% salary because it's the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. It's the poorest country per capita GDP in South America. The entire GDP is 13.5 billion US. Per capita GDP is 6.5 billion people. Per capita GDP is $2,000. So yeah. when you have a million people in the informal workspace, and these are subsistence farmers, chickens, and uh, or artisanal miners. None of these guys are paying tax. Most of them don't have bank accounts. Yeah, yeah. And when we've been buying land, we had to go and set up bank accounts at the same time. So <laughs> yeah, the, government, the government actually can't do too much. And that, that's a, a problem which I think is missed by many Westerners. And people like Brazil, they've had a hard time because they haven't really closed down. We've got 100 million, well, throughout South America, you've probably got a couple, couple hundred million people living living week to week hmm. you know that that they're the informal workforce and little entrepreneurs doing stuff you you can't sort of lay them off and say all right we'll pay your salary go home yeah yeah and obviously broadly have been sort of kept open as best they can yeah in Nicaragua's case which are, so if you you might say that's the swedish model yeah 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 <laughs> uh, the, the other benefit is the the average age is 28 so just bear in mind they don't have an aging obese population, unlike America, for example, 40% mm. obesity. They, they're, they're, it's a U. So, so they're hopeful. And they're, they're, where we are at the CAC, we have three viruses in the last four years. We've had uh, dengue fever, chikungunya, and uh, uh, um, 
uh, Zika virus. So the, the system then in Nicaragua, the healthcare system, is actually used by the Ministry of Health, is used to dealing with viruses, funnily enough. So, so they, they do have lots of helpers and they've done a, a reasonably good job under a, a, under a, a difficult environment, I would say. Mm. Mm. Um, so what's the strategy for the next six to 18 months and how does a high-grade mining scenario fit into uh, the strategy? Yeah, good, good, good question. We're weighing up our options ahead of that construction decision. So yeah. um, get it shovel ready by the end of the year. And I'd like to have all the land by the end of the year. Yeah. Uh, I think we're on target to do that, but if we have 90%, that's, that's pretty good going. Uh, put the bulldozers on, start clearing a site. That's this year. Next year will be a construction year. Now, in terms of construction, uh, I think we would probably do this in two stages. So we can either put up the big mill, uh, that's going to be about $120 million open bid only, and that's 120,000 ounces of gold a year. Or we could look at doing that in two phases. So we put up a smaller mill for $40, $50 million uh, and produce 1,000 tons a day, and then increase it after year three or four to, say, 4,000 tons a day. And at that stage, after three years, we actually add the underground in then as well. So to you, point, expand the plant then. you could take the capacity of the mill up four times, add in underground year four, say, yeah. and add in the big pit year four and so on. So high grade, to answer your scenario there, we've done a high grade scenario, which we put in our presentation. So if we take the high grade feeder pits, which I've mentioned, uh, you can high grade, you can use the high grade ore in the feeder pits, and, um, uh, and high grade a portion of land in the main pit. So you high grade that, and you come up with 1.6 million tons at 4.6 grams open fittable for 240,000 ounces of mill feed, which in recovered gold is about 225,000 ounces of gold. So that, uh, that demonstrates we could do 1,000 tons a day on that scenario. Uh, and that is, um, we, so we can either put that through a small plant ourselves, or we could toll refine that over to a nearby processing plant. Uh, so La Libertad plant owned by Caliber Mining has spare capacity. They have a ball mill of 2,200 tonnes a day on idle at the moment. Um, at these gold prices, we've got the permitted pits. There's nothing to stop us yes. actually taking it out and fast-tracking the project to cash flow. Yep. Um, we'd have to reach agreement with Caliber Mining, um, mm. obviously, and on how we split that. Um, but I think there's enough revenue there, and the grades are high enough. To keep everyone enough, happy. Enough there to, to, to be a win-win for both parties. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's something we'd like to do. Um, but I don't want to, I don't want to uh, overhype that and say we're definitely going to do it because we've got to reach an agreement. Yeah. Uh, so the high-grade scenario allows us to do toll milling and or, so we could do both, and or the small plant i.e. the two-step approach to, 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 to production. Yeah. And step two in, this, in that two-step approach, you'd, step one would be probably 50,000 ounces of gold a year, around that, for 1,000 tonnes a day, high grading. In phase two, you could take it up, if you add the underground in, you could be 170, 180,000 ounces of gold a year. So it gets quite a big mine at that stage. Yeah. And obviously there's two options there. What factors do you think you need to consider as to the decision as to what option you go with? Is there any good. main factors? Yeah, good question. I think that we've been around a long time, as you pointed out. Yeah. Uh, Jim Mellon and myself have 
20% of the company and you have other friends and contacts, you've got another 20% of the company. Uh, and there are other 10% can be spoke for by, by other people I know pretty well. So I think that we, I think we should have a minimum share price dilution and try and maximize the share price. That's really our the job of any CEO. Yeah. So uh, as a like, quite a large shareholder myself, I, I, I would favor the smaller, just speaking as a shareholder, I, I'm minimum capex, maximum cash flow, quick payback. I'm looking at the economics of this as a financier. Yeah, yeah. As, as opposed to beating my chest and saying, right, day one I can pull out all the stops and... Uh, just make it as big as possible, and, but then there's consequences with that. That's right. So I think that we, clearly we need to paint the path to it being a big, yeah. big mine. But, but I, I, I think we, I wouldn't want to go and issue three times the company's equity to go and do that. Yeah. You see what I mean? Not, not yeah. what we would issue it at today's price. I'm giving you an, an indication that minimizing share, shareholder dilution on a, on a construction financing yeah. is one of the main decisions that, 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 that I would look at. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've covered this slight, uh, covered this a little bit, the uh, ESG. Um, if you just give us, a, I suppose, a, a brief overview of what, what you guys are doing on the ESG side and what practices uh, do you follow? Okay. Environmental, social, and governance. Well, let's take the environmental and social first. Yeah. Um, we follow the World Bank and IFC performance standards, which sets out eight different studies for environmental and social uh, for companies in uh, uh, both at the pre-construction phase and at the development stage. And these are things like stakeholder engagement plans, land acquisition resettlement frameworks, and so on. So we've, we've done all those studies because we have the IFC in the shelf. So those are, those are benchmarks and those do risk the project actually. Uh, and I've touched on what we're doing on the social, uh, we're spending $20,000 a month in a local community. We have 40 people in the community engaged in social that deliver water, medicine, uh, sponsoring uh, um, uh, 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 degrees and training we're doing. So we're doing a lot with the community and, yeah. and that's proved money well spent because they voted for the new permits. Yeah. So, uh, Proof is in the in, in, in the pudding on, on the on the on the social side, if you like. And environmental, we take that very seriously. Uh, we Nicaragua is very environmentally conscious. Over fifty percent of the power is uh, renewable energies of uh, geothermal and uh, uh, hydro and wind, in particular. Uh, and the Ministry of the Environment, if the Ministry of the Environment issues the environmental permit to construct to develop, construct, and operate the mine. Ten years. That's the, so you're dealing with the Ministry of the Environment as your master permit. So yeah. you, you better get that right. Um, on the governance side, we're at a corporate governance level. Obviously, we're regulated in London. We're regulated by the OSC in Canada. So I've got two regulators on my back, if you like. Um, we have uh, non-exec directors on the board. We've got four. Um, so and we obviously UK company complying with UK company law. Uh, so there's a number of checks and balances on the, on, on, on the government side. And obviously locally, we, we push down that ethos down to the local managers. So about, about keeping on the straight and narrow on everything that we actually do. And paying people well locally, um, but, but they're just trying to keep play it with a straight back there. Yeah. Um, what are you confident uh, with uh, the India project is a 5 million ounce gold district. Um, what work has Condor done to, to sort of prove this? 
Yeah, that's a good question. We, we've, we're all speaking about permits and production and cash flow and shovel ready. And you know, I think a huge value, latent value in the projects, actually, it's a district play. It's a yeah. five-minute district play. Um, now, one of our shareholders is Ross Beatty, who is Canadian and probably one of the most best-known mining entrepreneurs in Canada. Um, he owns six, six and a half percent of the company. Uh, and ahead of his investment, he sends down a top geologist uh, who now works for us, Dr. Warren Pratt, as a consultant. Uh, and I'd encourage anybody interested in that to look on our website on condogold.com, look under technical share investors and then the technical videos. There are three superb technical videos by him which talk about Landia Gold District, uh, Landia Vein, and the Cacao Vein. So, and there, and he talks through those. They're 10 to 15 minutes each video. But basically what we've done, while we've had these delays on permits, you know, the silver lining, if you might like, from having these setbacks, yeah. is I haven't just stood there and done like all. We've, we've doubled the land package, so we've applied for adjacent concessions. We've got 580 square kilometers now, so it's quite a very big mm -hmm. land package. And we've done a structural geological model. So this is what's called a low sulfidation epidermal vein system. So the two major regional faults running through the project. Uh, uh, and they run parallel to each other and offset with a linking structure between the two. Uh, the point about the faults or cracks in the earth's surface, that's where the gold-bearing fluids come out. And so we've picked up all the land around that. We've flown it with helicopter-borne geophysics and magnetic surveys, and they show the faults and they show the gold float on the surface. We've sent geologists out to map it. So we've mapped 106 kilometers of gold-bearing veins on the surface which less than 20% is in our answers. Yeah, so yeah. Some, of that, some of that's going to come through. Uh, and we've got loads of drill-ready targets, but we've done all that in the bear market. So what, what do you need to do to prove the district play? You need to, you've got to do that groundwork. You can't just go drill it without any of that. So we've done, oh, we've done soil geochemistry. So okay, soil yeah. geochemistry is a grid every 400 meters square to 100 meters square. Uh, we took over, we sent three teams of geologists over it for 18 months. So this is the biggest soil geochemistry program in Nicaragua. Uh, just the pulps, uh, uh, soil samples cost $30 each. Uh, we've spent half a million US dollars just on essay. And that's all essayed in the States or Canada. Yeah. And we have all that, those, those soil, soil geochemistry, they are sampled for a suite of 51 elements from arsenic to mercury to, to, to trillium, you know, a whole, whole and they vector into the gold. So they, they show a pathway to where's the gold coming from. So all this coming together is, is what our, our geologists tell me is, is, um, it, it, it demonstrates we've got a five million ounce plus gold district. Yeah. Um, but we, I've need got... to drill it. we need to drill it. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's drill ready now. Okay. Yeah. But obviously the geologists and like you said, the, the top geologists that you've got there have assessed it and that's their... Yeah, that's what they say. They think that's an easy target. Yeah. So. yeah. I've got a couple more questions. Um, what the project economics are 1800 and 2000 gold price? Um, I see the PFS is that um, 1250 gold price. Um, so, yeah, just wonder if you can uh, just explain that. Yes. Uh, well, I think our, 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 our IRR on the 1250 gold price on the PFS only uh, was just 21%, say just. It's quite yeah. a good IRR. Um, but, but 
$700 or $650 higher, it's going to go up because our, our all-in sustaining cash cost is lower quartile globally. We're $690 an ounce. Yeah. Uh, call it $700 an ounce break-even all-in sustaining cash cost. So at $1,700, you're making over $1,000 margin, free cash flow margin per ounce. So if that, that, the main pit, we've redone the numbers. We can either produce 80,000 ounces of gold a year from it, or we can, do, we can mine a bit quicker, which you do today. Yeah. And produce 100,000 ounces of gold for it, and you mine it out in uh, six years instead of seven and a half years. Um, so so it, it, it's going to put your NPV up massively and your IRR up really significantly. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, and lastly, um, if there was one person and this is probably a bit more of a personal question. If there's one person um, you would want to hear from on this podcast and I uh, get to uh, get the opportunity to interview that particular person, who, who could you recommend that maybe someone that's got a good story to tell or someone's at the top of their game? Can you recommend anyone that you've come across or that you know of that I should uh, interview on this podcast? Well, I think you could interview two of my fellow directors who are good. So Ian Stalker is a mining engineer uh, from Glasgow. Yeah. Um, he joined the board as a non-exec director uh, last, at the end of last year. Uh, Ian's a director of K92 Mining, and he founded yeah. that. And he's built five gold mines. He also uh, was the CEO of Ariba, sorry, Euromin, that sold to Ariba for $2.6 billion. So yeah. Ian's very successful, and uh, his background's in gold. Yeah. Um, and Andrew Cheetle, my fellow director, actually, has a, uh, uh, is uh, formerly a Gold Corp and Anglo Shanty and former CEO of PDAC. So he ran PDAC for uh, yeah. three years, uh, senior geologist. Both, both of those are, would have interesting comments on the industry and their experience. Um, and apart from that, I'd, I'd point you probably to the, to, to the leading uh, people in, in Canada now who yeah. to interview people who one gold companies there. Yeah, yeah, certainly. No, I appreciate that. And I'll, I'll try and reach out to uh, both Ian and Andrew um, and see if they'd like to, uh, to do this podcast. So really appreciate your time, Mark. Um, if our audience wants to um, ask you any questions, um, yeah. obviously around Condor uh, Gold, how can they go about doing that? And are you on any social media platforms? Yeah, we, 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 we do have Twitter accounts, but we subcontract the managing of that. Uh, my yeah, and others do. I can't, don't get involved on yeah. dated Twitter. I don't think that's a good use for CEO's time. Um, I think any questions can come into to our general email address, which I'm normally always happy to answer. But by and large, providing that people are shareholders in the company, I, I, otherwise I just get swamped. Yeah. Um, so if someone's a shareholder, they can prove they're a shareholder by a screenshot or something, and they go onto our website, and I think it's information at or chairman at Condor Gold, uh, or information at or info at Condor Gold, uh, then they can, they can drop an email and yeah. re refer to this uh, podcast, yeah. and uh, I'd be happy to answer questions directly to them. Yeah, certainly. And we'll put those in the show notes accompanying this podcast. And alternatively, if you want to uh, ask, any, uh, ask Mark any questions, you can forward the emails to myself, and I can forward them on to Mark. And my email address is rob at mining-international.org. Um, really appreciate your time, Mark. Um, you gave a really good account of Condor Gold um, and what you guys are doing there. It looks an exciting project. 
Um, and obviously, with the gold price rising, um, I think it's going to be a, a certainly attractive investment for anyone. So um, I'll be watching it closely as well. Well, I think in terms of the investment, you just have to look at the companies like us quite often get valued at multi, uh, uh, ounces of gold in the ground. We're about 1% of the gold price. We're $19 an ounce in the ground. We've got $10 million of cash in the bank. So we're in a good position having raised money uh, yeah. last month. Um, uh, and companies should, we should really be trading between 3% to 8% of the gold price, particularly as we've got permits and we've got a district play and we can make it bigger. So I think, I think we are very undervalued at the moment. Yeah. So I'll just give a little plug in on that. And, uh, yeah. And uh, that's fine. And any of the audience uh, listening to this, there's a little tip there. They're a bit undervalued. So um, I think everyone's looking for value, um, especially with the gold price rising. Um, so yeah, you've heard it from Mark first. So yeah, really appreciate your time again. Hope the audience um, enjoyed this uh, podcast, uh, this episode. Um, please share it amongst people that you know who may, uh, who may want to hear more from Mark and hear more about Condor Gold. Really appreciate if you can share this. Um, and until next time, happy mining. Thanks for listening to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining.